0: Hey, hey, beer
1: fans! Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Simple Homebrewing. Now available at all your finest retailers, and it makes a hell of a Christmas gift.
0: That's right. As a matter of fact, all three of our books make great Christmas gifts. You could give somebody a complete
1: set. And, if you're really crazy, you could even buy them from us and we'll autograph them. That's right, if you're really crazy. <laughs> now, between the two of us, we have over 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and coming up with a way to check it out. And on today's episode, well, today's episode is going to be a shorter episode because it is the holiday weekend. And I don't know about you, but I'd rather spend my time recovering from turkey than editing. So. Yeah, really, man. And I'm, I want to have a beer this afternoon, so screw the editing. <laughs> There we go. So this might be an interesting episode, but we are going to cover the beer news. We're going to talk a little bit of science. We're going to talk a little bit about our plans for Christmas, and also we're going to remind you of some things that are coming up and get you out of here on something kind of fun and boozy for something other than beer. Woo! that's great. Indeed. Now, I think first, we've got to take care of some business. Yep, it's business time,
0: so we're going to take a quick break here and let you guys listen to the messages from some of the people who make this show possible. We'll be right back.
1: This episode is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF 4. When you absolutely, positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaners with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister, and by the American Homebrewers Association, organizers
0: of Learn to Homebrew Day, a nationwide celebration of homebrewing held every year on the first Saturday of November. To find a brew site near you or to host your own Learn to Homebrew Day gathering, visit homebrewersassociation. dot
1: org. And by you, our listeners, go to experimentalbrew. dot com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support. We're going to start off with some announcements, and Drew has the first one today. And yeah, and the first announcement is, as always, is about brew files, if you didn't pay attention, because the uh, schedule got a little screwy uh, last week. The episode came out on Friday, and it was episode 76, uh, called basically In Drew's Garage, where Denny was in my garage tasting my beers, and kind of an interesting space. You know what? And I really appreciated the Zappa reference in the title. <laughs> I try, um, but but no, the 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 whole thing was great fun. I, I mean, obviously we don't get to spend a lot of time together, you know, in person. But it's always nice to be able to sit down and have a beer and well play with new toys and try some interesting beers. And I think it was really good that we had four beverages, three of which were pretty damn good, and one of which was. Well, not, not bad, it just didn't, no, it didn't hit the mark. Yeah, exactly,
0: exactly, man. Uh, you know, and I thought it was very interesting that we uh, tasted my beers up in Seattle and tasted your beers down there, and we've been actually been doing a fair number of episodes tasting each other's beers, and uh, I hope that uh, it gives people the impression that we aren't really brewing gods.
1: Yeah, well, and I hope also people are having fun learning from us as we're doing that. So, Yeah, I, I hope so, too. Learn from our mistakes, huh? Yep, exactly, and from our successes. So go back and listen to that episode, and and I included links to Brewer's Friends for all the recipes that we talked about in the show. Cool, and we want to
0: remind you that our next episode is one of our all Q&A shows, a, a very special holiday show coming out December 18th, so please send in your questions. We need to get them in here by December 12th. You can do it via email. Questions at experimentalbrew.com. You can shoot them to us on Facebook, and you can uh, send us a text message or voicemail at 626 765
1: one Yes, I always love doing the Q&A shows. They're so much fun, so make yeah, sure we have yeah. content to talk about.
0: Yeah, and I, I think that people really enjoy them, too, uh, because uh, they learn stuff, and they get to see us
1: floundering around trying to figure out what the heck we're talking about. I like pretending that I know what I'm talking about, so I'm okay with that. (laughs) We're so good at it. We get a lot of practice. Exactly. And don't forget that you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. You can click the AHA, Amazon, Brewers, Friends, or BYO links on the website. And by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year, and it's the last month of this, It is called Chat with Champs. It's an organization that helps kids going through
0: cancer treatments by connecting them with champions so that they always have people they can talk to who support them. Uh, it's a a great great organization, and kids with cancer are something that we love to uh, give our support to. If anybody deserves it, they do. So please send us a few bucks by going to our website experimentalbrew.com, click on the Patreon link, give what you can, and we will pass it along to them. We've been averaging oh maybe like around eleven, twelve hundred bucks every six months for our charities. So please get on
1: board and give us a hand with that. Amen. All right, and now it's time for your feedback. Feedback. Oh, I love it when you make your voice do that. I would do it with my boss, but I think they find it too intimidating. (laughs) So we had one piece of feedback uh, from listener Jeff Hargrave, who wrote in about the last call event that we talked about in the last episode. This was the event done at the Smithsonian with Teresa McCullough and – Uh, Fritz Maytag and Jack McAuliffe and Steve Grossman and and the works uh, just kind of coming together and celebrating the new exhibit that they've put together. And Jeff uh, wrote in to say, I just caught your podcast comments on the Smithsonian last call event a couple of weeks ago. I caught Teresa's speech in Providence, which is uh, she spoke at the homebrook on there, and she sold me on the DC event. I just wanted to nerd out with you guys as it was one of those events where on one hand, you can't believe what's happening and want to tell all your friends about the royalty you're seeing. But on the other hand, you fully appreciate that beer famous does not equal famous. Yes. The sold-out evening started with an hour of beer tastings. uh, Think a small, intimate beer fest. uh, From Sierra Nevada, Dogfish Head, New Belgium, uh, Rally, who had brewed a new Albion, and that was Jack McAuliffe's Brewery. uh, And Anchor. During this portion, some artifacts were on display, such as Sam's football game of 60-minute IPA fame. This was the electric uh, table game that uh, shook the hops in continuously. Right. and you could wander back to check out the museum's new brewing display, which was a small feature in the wine exhibit, which itself was a small exhibit in the food exhibit. Yep, that's right. Beer inside of wine inside of food. It's like a turducken of museums. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> the beer fest was followed by a one hour panel discussion, which per attach was Michael, Charlie, Ken, and Fritz, and Teresa. In the crowd was Kim Jordan uh, from New Belgium. Uh, couldn't find her afterwards to say hi, which would have made for a good story given the recent New Belgium news. Remember, the last time we uh, talked, or actually, did we even cover it? New Belgium has agreed to sell, uh, or at least they've put the offer to their employees to uh, sell to, I think it was Kieran. Yep, that's it. And so uh, that'll be really interesting to see. Kieran uh, Kieran, and Sapporo both seem to actually do pretty well at respecting their brewery's origins. Yeah, yeah. If you're going to sell those, are pretty benign organizations to sell to. Uh, The Odell founders were in the crowd, and Jack also from New Albion. Uh, And it says here, naturally, Jack was referenced most often by Teresa and the panelists. The panelists took turns weighing in on Teresa's questions, recounting mostly the early days. If there's audio somewhere, it's worth hearing. And yes, I would love to hear this audio. Um, Yeah. uh, The You couldn't write any better highlight was towards the end during Q&A with the crowd. The question isn't important, but they did bring Jack a mic in the audience to weigh in. He humbly deflected whatever the question was, saying something about his daughter seated next to him is the one who is new Albion Brewing these days. And I think she has a Twitter handle, something like uh, a brewing daughter uh, on. uh, So you can find her uh, fairly easily. Uh, And so he goes on to say she took the mic and said, Dad, I'm just here because of you, to which he didn't miss a beat and said, I think we're all here because of me. (laughs) Yeah. And in a way that's kind of true. Yeah. I mean, uh, a lot of people give credit to Fritz Maytag for kind of starting up the, the American craft beer movement when he bought uh, anchor just before it went out of business in the late sixties. Uh, but Jack is the one who founded the first new brewing company and, and founded what really we would all recognize as a microbrewery these days. Um, it was only operational, I think, for four years, four or six years. Um, not, not yeah, very not long. very long. Yep. Nope. Um, but it, it, she, uh, He goes on to say the crowd broke out into applause, and Teresa knew that this was the moment in the panel discussion. Yes, always go out on a high note. And says uh, following the discussion was more beer and hors d'oeuvres. Um, at that point, I'm proud to say I clinked glasses with Jack, got my picture with a billionaire, uh, a.k.a. Ken Grossman, and then generally <laughs> stood back with my buddy and toasted wh- over what a cool experience we had partaken in. Then we found a craft beer bar and continued the evening. It's what the panelists would have wanted. And yes, it was. Wow, that's
0: that's really cool, Jeff. Thanks for uh, writing in and giving us the rundown on the event. Uh, you were lucky to have been there, man.
1: Yeah, and if anybody knows where you can find audio of that, I'm assuming the Smithsonian has audio of it, uh, because why wouldn't they? Uh, then we, I would love to be able to get to hear it. Yeah, that would, be, that would be amazing, wouldn't it? Yep, and now having spoken about all this beer and beer drinking and beer history, I think it's time for me to go have a beer.
0: Let's head over to the pub, and uh, we'll have a couple beers and talk about the beer life. Stick around. We're going to be right back.
1: This episode is brought to you by Brewers Publications, publisher of beer and brewing books that help millions of brewers improve their craft. Visit BrewersPublications.com to explore their catalog of trusted brewing resources.
0: Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. Mecca Grade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon High Desert Farm. Their eighth generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve Mechagrade. For more information, please visit Mechagrade.com. back, and we are sitting in the Experimental Brewing Pub at the corner of everywhere and nowhere in your town, wherever in the world you happen to be, and we are having a couple beers, and uh, Drew, what are you
1: drinking there? Well, I decided I'd bring it back around to the brew files, and I just went and got a keg of this uh, for tomorrow's club meeting, so that I can pour it for everybody there, but I got a keg of the uh, Quashing Falcons, and of course I had to pour myself a QC glass, and that's, sure, uh, of course, man. Yeah, and that's the Quashing Falcons from Transplants Brewing Company, which was the butternut squash saison recipe that you heard us talking about. Uh, well, I think a couple of episodes back on uh, on the Brew Files. So, it, you know, it's a it's a really interesting beer, uh, and I'm really actually super happy with how it came out because it does have some squashy tones to it. You know, you do get that kind of roast vegetable uh, piece to it, but without mm-hmm. the without that green jalapeno thing that you get a lot of times from Peels. And it has a wonderful, mellow spiciness to it that, of course, it's all from the East. So I like that approach.
0: Wow. Yeah, I mean, you know,
1: there's something about butternut squash and beer that just seems right. <laughs> well, <and>, like <laughs> I posted a, a, a picture of the keg the other day, and uh, somebody, somebody had a, a a mixed reaction to it. Like, I can't imagine it working, but, of course, you run with good brewers. So Yeah, and, right. I mean, to me, look, it's squash. It's... Uh, it's squash it's got starch which we make into sugar which then the yeast are happily going to chew on so it's not the weirdest thing by far that anybody's ever thrown into a beer well you know what and maybe the fact
0: that i've been cooking with butternut squash lately too so i really have uh, that flavor firmly implanted in my head
1: oh yeah 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 i just have my roasted butternut squash and i think tomorrow i'm going to turn into soup so
0: cool yeah, well, and speaking of things that you can't imagine will work, but they really do, at a recent song release, they were pairing their beers with uh, Rogue Cheeses, uh, Rogue Creamery, not Rogue Brewery, uh, here in Oregon. Rogue just uh, won an award uh, as the best blue cheese in the world at a French competition. And one of the beers that they were serving that day, was their Raspberry Rhino Suit. Uh, This is uh, an Imperial Milk Stout, and uh, this one was aged on raspberries. And they were pairing it with a Rogue Creamery Smoky Blue Cheese, which is one of their blue cheeses that had been smoked with hazelnut shells, of all things. Hmm. Uh, Yeah, I know, man. (laughs) I saw that pairing listed, and my first reaction was, Oh, this is going to be really
1: weird. Well, Well, that's just a lot of intense flavors.
0: Yeah, it is. It really is. But let me tell you, this is maybe one of the best beer and food pairings I have ever had. Uh, The the funkiness and the smoke from the blue cheese kind of just balanced each other out perfectly and when you took a bite of the blue cheese and then uh, drank some of the raspberry uh imperial uh milk stout afterwards it, it was one of those things that just worked beautifully the chocolate and the raspberry flavors from the beer no chocolate in the beer of course um went so well with the smoky blue that it was beyond belief and uh, as a result, we ended up buying uh, several extra bottles of that beer and have been out hitting the markets lately buying the Rogue Smoky Blue also to go with it. Uh, and, uh, you know, like I said, it's one of those things that you just can't imagine it would work, and it turns out being one of the best things you'll ever put in your mouth.
1: Hmm. That, that is interesting. Now, is Rogue Cream really related to the brewery? Is, is it the same? No.
0: No. no. Uh, it's, it's down on the Rogue River, right? Ah. Uh. Um, In in southern Oregon, uh, you know, or in the Rogue River uh, vicinity, Uh, Rogue Brewery, I think, maybe actually had gotten the name because they started off in southern Oregon, uh, Mm -hmm. kind of in the Rogue River uh, vicinity, and then moved out to the coast, and they kind of took the Rogue to
1: mean uh, an attitude as opposed to a river. There you go. That works. But I'm I'm fascinated by the idea of a smoked blue cheese because that does – that just does sound really intense. You know what, man? I'll see if I can get some down there to you. Mmm, jeez.
0: <laughs> yeah, right. Okay, enough about what we're drinking. Let's uh, get into talking about what the world's drinking, or at least the U.S., huh?
1: Yeah, and so a couple pieces of news. We'll cover those. Uh, the first one is there was another acquisition that happened, but not like uh, not like the new Belgian one that we just talked about, and not like any other ones that we've been talking about, but. Uh, a cidery in Virginia called Bold Rock Cider um, has joined ABV, which is what uh, Artisan Beverage Ventures, I think, is the the name of it. Which Art- is uh, yeah, artisanal brewing ventures. There you go, artis- uh, artisanal brewing ventures, and it's actually a, what it is effectively. It's a, a holding company, an umbrella corporation of the partnership between uh, Southern Tier, Six Point, and Victory. So those are uh, three pretty well-respected middle-aged craft breweries now, I would say. And yeah. the Bold Rock Cider has now joined them. They they claim to be the number two cider maker in the U.S., which I would guess would put them behind Angry Orchard. Um, I think Angry Orchard has that title for top cider maker in the U.S. And apparently they're making about 80,000 barrels per year of cider and everybody's favorite, seltzer. <laughs> um and to me, it's kind of interesting. And the reason why I wanted to talk about this was not only not only the fact like, okay, well, you know, here's the cider thing. And people have still been trying to push that, you know, cider is going to happen. Cider is going to be the next big trend. Cider took off for a little while, and then it's kind of fallen back. And I think most of the people who were going to cider because they wanted something that was sort of more healthy, more natural, or more uh, gluten-free have moved on to seltzer, which is the reason why I thought it was interesting that they talk about the fact that uh bold rock also makes seltzer and now i'm wondering what's the what's the percentage
0: yeah you know um i think that a lot of people are going for cider just because it's lighter you know mm-hmm. it doesn't have the calories that beer does uh you know i know that on my non-beer days here uh I'll either have a glass of wine or a cider uh, because mm-hmm. that way I can still have a nice drink and uh, not have to worry about the extra calories from uh, all the
1: carbs in it. And I do think it's interesting reading the uh, press release about the merger because, oh boy, has it proved that there's uh, some hardcore business types and marketing types behind this one because they're like, yeah, uh, uh, Boulder Rock's 80,000 barrels of craft cider and seltzer solidifies ABV's position as one of the nation's top 10 regional... Craft adult alcohol beverage platforms. <laughs> Craft adult beverage alcohol platforms. That is only a term that a business person can come up
0: with. Yeah, right, right. Exactly, man. Craft adult beverage platform. <sighs> <laughs> but, you know, I I always say brewing is a business, and you have to think of it that way. You can't get wrapped up in the romance of the fact that you're making this great beer or cider or something like that. So I guess, you know, I can't really complain when they
1: do what I tell them they should do. Yeah, agreed. And, I mean, at least in this particular case, yeah, we're still inside of an umbrella corporation that is, you know, not uh, – well – not as nefarious. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Well, it, it kind of reminds me like of the, the Craft Brew Alliance here in the Northwest that has been putting together coalitions like this. Mhm. Yep. And uh, yeah. And of course, yeah. Now CBA owned by Anheuser Bush, So. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, then there's that. Yeah. All right. Well, and that's uh, that's in the world of cider and whatnot. But there was also another piece I that was reading about from Growler Mag about, uh, I guess the way they put it is the death of a beer right yeah yeah really,
0: man., and I, and I found this very interesting because I can really see both sides of this uh you know it, it, the articles about how brewers who have built their reputations on a particular uh beer brand have have had to kill it off and and move on to something else because that's what the market wants, and again, you know, we're getting back to my thing saying, well, it's a business after all, darn it, and so you gotta give the market what they want but from a personal perspective i still bemoan the the loss of a lot of these basic core beers that so many breweries started with because i love them and that's what got me into
1: the brewery in the first place yeah and the primary example that they're talking about here was like uh certainly uh which in the winter of last year killed off two of their sort of core brands that they'd i believe pretty much launched with one of which was uh their bender oatmeal brown ale and then also their cynic which was their belgian style pale ale and i just remember i really liked bender bender was really nice and they had a they had a statement on it here that says here uh the reality of the craft beer industry in 2019 is that there are literally thousands of breweries vying for limited shelf space very true certain beer styles simply don't move at the velocity of others and those styles will get the short end of the stick on the market continuing to can cynic and bender despite how much we love them was throwing good money after bad. And it's a very fair point. I mean, I've bemoaned here on the, the podcast before about you know one of my favorite beers, Solidarity from Eagle Rock, was discontinued in a business decision because while people in the beer industry loved it and bartenders loved it, they couldn't get the general populace to go buy essentially a dark mild. So, yeah, it's, it's unfortunate. I think the other side of it is, to me is it also feels like the industry continues to be uh, forced to create something new all the time, uh, forced to sort of you know do do a little more of a dance and bring some sort of new expression of flavor to us. Uh, I just sometimes I I really am sad that that comes at a cost.
0: Yeah, yeah, uh, it is sad that uh, that new means you have to give up on the old. But again, it's a business and that's the way it works. Uh, but doesn't mean I have to like it.
1: Yep. Nope. I agree. But it's really interesting, this article in the growler, because it I mean, it has a, a Minnesota focus. But they're also talking about where uh, some of these decisions, they're, the breweries are learning that they have to make these decisions a lot faster. It's not just, hey, you know, we brought a new beer out. Now we got to go kill it and go bring another one. It's also sometimes uh, breweries will bring beers on board to have something big as like a new opportunity, uh, something that they think is going to be really good. And again, they use Surly as an example here where they had – had a beer called a uh, hop shifter, which right. was a gluten reduced IPA, so we're trying to go after that that part of the market that 's concerned about gluten consumption and they let it live for about five months before they killed it because it just never it, it never really took off in the way that they were expecting it to, and they actually said that they were learning from it from that experience because they really should have killed it off after three months
0: <laughs> you know and I think that this is this is kind of to, for me the the basic issue is that you bring out something new, you kill off something old for it, and then the new stuff doesn't take off. So where does that leave you? It, it's difficult to try and guess what the market is going to go for.
1: Nope. And they do also have a counterexample in here, also from that region, Summit, where Summit has uh, I mean, really kind of doubled down on their flagships and continue to use their flagships as their, as their market drivers. Right. So yeah. kind of interesting. The article closes
0: by saying, consumers hold the power. Choosing a classic over the sour, sweet, or quirky is crucial for keeping a brand alive. When there's a brew you'd like to see on shelves year after year, buy it. When there's a brew you claim is your favorite, don't be finicky, drink it. Behind every good beer is a story. Consumers decide which stories live on. Very true, man. You vote with your pocketbooks uh, when it comes to buying beer. So if there's something
1: you like, keep buying it. Indeed, buy, uh, buy what's going to make you happy. Just remember that uh, you know it might be the beer that you like that's going to go away. Yeah, that's right. Well, or or
0: buy what's going to make me happy because that way it'll be around.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm the
0: important one here. Don't you guys know this? <laughs> yeah, that, it's all about me. It's all about me. You're always so humble, buddy. Yeah, right. Well, hey, I hope that people realize that was a joke. Yes, it's it's actually all about Drew, and we try and do everything we can to make sure Drew's happy. Please.
1: All right. So, <laughs> speaking of things that make me happy, I like seeing uh, uh, corporations uh, step in it sometimes, and there's a lot of stuff. This past weekend was uh, Black Friday, right? And so there's been the tradition in what like the past decade, more, of oh. people lining up to go buy Goose Island's uh, Bourbon County Stout, or as some people have put on the uh, on the on the interwebs as a meme, the uh, the one day per year when everybody forgets that uh, Goose Island sold to ABI. <laughs> yeah. And they've been doing these games where they've been playing where it's not just the original uh, Bourbon County Stout, but now they have all these variants and they have the Proprietor series and the Rares and all these variants and they've effectively turned it into a, a game of Pokemon. And you see these lines of people just in the Chicago winter, lined up outside of a liquor store in the morning, trying to, uh, trying to go get a, a bottle. Um, now, that wouldn't be very newsworthy because that's been a thing that's going on for a while, although people are talking about that that whole phenomenon seems to be dying back to just Chicago, and you can go to other parts of the country and find the rares and everything else on the shelf uh, without having to wait in line. But what kicked off the attention to this year's season about it was uh, – Author for the Chicago Tribune reporter for the Chicago Tribune, uh, Josh Knoll, who has uh, the Twitter handle of Hopnotes, and he has been covering Goose Island and Bourbon County Stout for years, and wrote a book about it uh, called uh, "Barrel-Aged Beer and Selling Out," which may have been the reason that this happened. ABI or Goose Island or some, well or somebody in that chain decided that they weren't going to re- they weren't going to invite their local reporter who had been covering this event for ever and ever to the private press only uh, release tasting. They purposely excluded him like, and so he, he just started asking questions like what's going on here. And his, his take was sort of bemused by it because he's like, look, I've had a good relationship with the goose Island folks. And I felt like I was fair in the book. And I mean, if you, if you've read the book, sure. He calls out some of the bad stuff, but it's still a fairly even handed take.
0: Yeah, well, and as, as he pointed out, through about 2011, he's, uh, like, real complimentary to the brewery, and, uh, you know, and then he gets into after that when uh, ABI kind of got involved, and he says, AB InBev clearly hated it.
1: Oh, well, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, it was not actually a huge surprise, but it was kind of funny to see, like, him kind of go, huh, isn't that interesting? And then I think, didn't you say uh, Martin – Took up the Yeah, yeah. Martin Cornell uh, wrote about it, too, in Zythophile,
0: And uh, so he kind of like comes at it from uh, a different perspective, looking at what happened to Josh. And uh, it's, uh, you know, it, it's very interesting to see his take on it, which is, of course, is it's very cutting and sarcastic. no. Uh, <laughs> yeah I mean, you know mealy mouth creeps, be honest, ye scabs <laughs> that 's one of that 's one of martin 's uh, comments you know, uh, you know he says uh, so face uh, so he quotes josh as, uh, one of his tweets is saying, so faced with not being invited to last year 's bourbon county media preview, something about needing to have a better working relationship to which Martin adds his comment needing to kiss our bottoms more (laughs) like you know so so you can you know you can kind of get both sides of the thing here josh is uh fairly calm uh even-handed and bemused take on it and martin's like up yours look at it
1: yeah exactly well i I think that's just called uh martin has a little bit more of an outsider's presence so he can be a little bit more um sure aggressive yeah Yeah, exactly so what I did think was interesting was after all this started to hit on the on the interwebs, uh, a couple of people who actually had access to the early releases of Bourbon County stepped forward. They basically, I think they'd paid like $100 for a ticket and then like an extra $100 for the beer uh, to be at a tasting and get the beer to go away la, 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 la. And they were also apparently given a, an opportunity to buy a special bottle uh, that was a surprise bottle, sort of like another 50 bucks two of his uh, readers actually stepped forward after that release and brought him the beer and did a shared tasting with him. And then he finally also got his hands on the other ones. He had to, he had, he had to outsource this in order to be able to do the, the tasting that you'd expect the media to be able to do. And he tasted, he tasted it all the way through, and he wrote up a, a review, and he's basically was like, uh, Bourbon County just isn't worth the hype anymore. Um, he gave a review of all the variants that, uh, that were around, and ranked them saying, I think it was that the reserve rye was the best, followed by the Bourbon County stout itself. That's interesting
0: because uh, Martin, you know, at the end of his column, uh, relates that he went to a tasting in oh. London. Uh, and uh, uh, part of his column goes, So, on that basis, what were those free Bourbon County stouts you drank like, Martin? And Martin says, very fine indeed, actually. This is a beer you really need to track down and try. It's massively filled with flavors, something to sip, savor, and enjoy. And also, judging by the differences between 2018 and 2019, a beer that will change in fascinating ways as it ages. So, you know, again, Martin is getting down on all the the hype and intrigue
1: while at the same time saying, yeah, this is one hell of a good beer. See, and I guess maybe I'm I'm weird in a couple of ways. I've never been tempted to stand in line for a beer, right? Um, the, you know what, man? I, I was tempted. I think once, like when I went
0: to the Great American Beer Fest, uh-huh. and that was it. Uh, you know, after that, for the rest of my time there, I went to the booths that had no lines. I wasn't as concerned about finding the hugely popular beers that everyone is talking about that you waited in line for. Two hours for two ounces of beer, and that attitude is carried through to other things. I just
1: I'm no, I'm not interested in standing in line for anything, and that includes beer. Yeah, I think the only the last time I stood in a line was to go into the stuffed sandwich to go have uh, to go have some plenty of the younger, and okay. that's that, that's more about supporting Marlene. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, man. Uh, uh, stuffed Sandwich is a great place, and it would be worth it to do that. So, Well, and we'll get there in a moment. But I I just thought it was interesting, because I think even back in the day, uh, it, when was the AJ Conference in Chicago? That was like, 05? It was before my time. Yeah. So uh, somewhere about there, I went to the Chicago Conference, and I was super excited, and I went to Goose Island. And, oh, hey, look at that. They had the Berman County Stout on on tap, and I tried it. And even back then... I felt like I'd had better versions of that same idea. So, Oakshire here uh, in Eugene does
0: a big barrel-aged beer festival every year, and uh, they have brought in Bourbon County Stout, Hoonapoo, those kinds of things. And those are very, very good beers, but I have to think that if you're standing in line for hours for something like that, maybe you need to go out there and examine some
1: of the other very, very good beers that are out there uh, instead. Yep. So there we go. Kind of kind of interesting. I would love to know if there's, you know, who amongst our listeners has stood in line for the Berman County Stout, if anybody's still doing it, if you consider it worth, worthwhile, and what you thought about the beers. Now, the other thing that uh, Josh did note was that this year's lineup was better than last year's. So there's at least that. <laughs> there's at least that.
0: Okay, we've been talking about uh, drinking beer. How about if we head over to the brewery and talk about making beer? Absolutely. All right. (laughs) Okay. We're going to take a quick break here, and when we come back, we'll be in the brewery. So we'll see you in a couple minutes. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my wort to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the wort to cool enough to add whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your word in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art. They're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. Yakima Chief Hops is a 100% grower-owned global hop supplier located in the Pacific Northwest with a mission to connect family farms to the world's finest brewers. With their new online store, YCH products are now available wherever brewers choose to shop. Browse the aisles of your local homebrew store or buy direct from YCH at shop.yakimachief.com. Also, experience the new YCH Mobile Solutions app, A free, sustainable alternative to the popular Hop Variety Handbook with information on more than 120 hop varieties to help you make the best beer possible. Available now in the Apple Store or at Google Play. In the brewery, the stainless steel is gleaming. Burners are going. Uh, fridges are fridging. And uh, let's start off by talking about the uh, Malto's Falcons' 45th anniversary
1: party, which I was fortunate
0: to be invited to.
1: Yes, and, and fortunate to come down and visit lovely Los Angeles during a well, a nice, a nice warm day. Yeah, it was. <laughs> So, yeah, uh, so Denny came down uh, to come hang out with me because uh, the Falcons turned 45 this year. And we decided, well, let's be responsible adults and throw ourselves a fancy party. And we do that every five years. And but, of course, we can't just come down for one party. So we went on a little bit of an adventure. Uh, you heard one part of that adventure in last week's episode of The Brew Files, uh, where Denny got to hang out in my garage, my right. my, my happy space. Um, And. But before that, like, I got you off the plane, picked you up at LAX, which is a very interesting trip to go into LAX. And, uh, we, we need to stop to go pick up beer for the 45th anniversary party because we didn't have enough. Um, so we stopped at LA Ale Works and y'all have heard from, uh, Kip at LA Ale Works before on the show. We did the Brew Files episode with him doing a cool ship in, uh, there in Hawthorne and, uh, I know, Denny, I think we were originally thinking that was just going to be like, oh, hey, let's make a quick stop. We'll have a beer and then we'll we'll go get the beer and and take it on home and get you set up. But it turned into a little bit of a, well, a little bit of a a deal. Uh, LA Works was, was great. Uh, very comfortable little
0: patio at back where we sat and had a beer. And, uh, I had a chance to meet Kip, a, a really wonderful guy, gracious host, took us around, showed us the brewery, kept pouring us samples of various beers. And, uh, I had a great
1: IPA called Lunar Kitten that I brought home for my wife. Oh, well, yeah. Lunar Kitten's one of his flagships. But I also love the fact that he was kind of like, oh, hey, you know, here you guys are curious about this topic. Uh, some of the Quakeys and whatnot and uh, some of the other beers he was doing. He was like, here, hold on one second. And it disappears into the fridge and comes back later with four packs of cans for us to take. It was just nice. Yeah. And then after that, I got uh, we got to hang out at Eagle Rock Brewing Company. I referenced them in the last segment about solidarity. Uh, we hung out there for a little bit, uh, signed a couple of books. Uh, talked with people and just generally enjoyed one of uh, L.A.'s oldest craft breweries. Uh, nice, uh, nice, tiny little space there, but it, it's tiny but mighty. Uh, yeah, yeah. It was very, very tiny uh, with some really, really tasty
0: beers there. Uh, I didn't go through a whole bunch of different ones because I was real spaced out from getting up uh, early to catch a plane and all that kind of stuff. But
1: nice place, um, nice people. Yep. Uh, an interesting neighborhood. Um, yeah. But I think uh, – the I don't know about you. Besides the party, I think the highlight of the trip and you know, my other happy spot was when I got to take you over to the sandwich. And, yeah, you know, yeah. The, the stuffed sandwich that uh, you've been telling me about for so many
0: years. I finally got a chance to go there. Had uh, – was what was that? Was it a cheesesteak that they had? Uh, uh, no, what was the it? It sandwich? It well, was no, really I,
1: different. Yeah, no. You had the pastrami. With the the, same, the San Gabriel style, style pastrami.
0: That's right, because it's pastrami with a dip, like you would get mm-hmm. in a French dip or something. And it was, it was absolutely delicious and uh, great. Great beer selection. I, I had a local West Coast IPA. I don't even remember what it was yet. Uh, unfortunately, I could only have one beer there because we were on our way to the party and a book signing and all this other stuff. So uh, I kind of had to be more temperate than normal.
1: Well, yeah, and of course we hung out. My, you got to hang out with one of my favorite people in the world, Marlene.
0: Yeah, uh,
1: who that was just was an amazing host. But if you ever get a chance, you guys have heard episodes uh, recorded at the Stuff Sandwich. So if you ever get a chance to go hang out at the Stuff Sandwich, you probably really should. And if you are there, uh, send me a message. I made <laughs> I make the excuse. <laughs> He'll
0: show up in about uh, three hours because uh, even though it's close by, those are L.A. freeways.
1: That's not true. I live I live 15 minutes from the sandwich by surface street. Um, yeah. But yeah, we went we went on we did a book signing at my my homebrew shop, the home beer wine cheese making shop uh, over there in Woodland Hills, which is also another tiny but mighty place. Um, and yeah, you know, kind of a interesting comparison between uh, that that space and Micro that we were at the the week prior yeah yeah uh very very different places yeah it's like uh, my my shop is you know very old very old school uh kind of warren-esque in a few ways uh whereas tony had everything you know sort of beautifully lined up and and out there but it's still it's it's my my shop it opened in 1972 and uh it still has all the ingredients that uh, that every home brewer can need
0: i thought you were gonna say it still
1: has all the ingredients from 1972 no.
0: Stop. <laughs> but and then and then finally we made it to the party. Uh, Drew went and set up. Uh, I just kind of like spaced around looking at things. Uh, the Falcons have some of the most uh, amazing draft equipment I've ever seen. These. Uh, <laughs> Uh, kind of like cooler boxes that hold five or six cornies, mm-hmm. but they look like rock and roll road cases. I mean, <laughs> they were just they were just amazing. And then you what you have like like is that like twenty six taps or something on that one unit?
1: Yeah, that's a, a, 20, a 20 tap bar right. that's on that's mounted on a trailer. So the, all you have to do is hitch it up to your truck, roll it into a spot, and drop it off, and you know, Bob's your uncle. And then,
0: and then hook one of these uh, coolers full of cornies up to it. I mean, mm-hmm. it was – these guys uh, have um, obviously done this before, and they knew what they were doing. Just a few uh, times. Yeah, I think yeah, we ended up right. having something like 46 beers on tap. Was it 46? I was going to say 42, but, I mean, that was commercial beers and home brews. Yep. Uh, I I tasted, uh, I tasted a few of the home brews, but I have to admit that I just got hooked on the Sierra Nevada – celebration that had just come out it was fresh it was delicious and i just had to keep going back to that
1: well and let's set that up because we had two speakers at the event uh one of whom you hear from all the time around here uh, aka mr khan but the other one was (laughs) uh steve grossman the other grossman brother uh who is been kind of an executive with sierra nevada for a very long time and kind of helps run LA and Southern California for him. Uh, but yeah, he showed up, he told some great stories about the old days, about how, uh, both he and Ken got involved in homebrewing, uh, possibly before it was legal for them to, um, and how that ended up. And they started with our club and our shop and how they then went and opened up the store in Chico, which then eventually became the brewery. So, Hey, you know, if you like those, uh, bottles of celebration, you have the Maltus Falcons to partially blame. Um, <laughs> But you know it was great to great to hear his stories. But also, let's talk about the venue. The venue was amazing.
0: It's uh, called Valley Relics, and it's a a museum with lots of relics from around the valley. A lot of uh, movie memorabilia. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the coolest collections of neon I have ever seen in my life. Uh, Rows of pinball machines that you could play for free. My God, I was just in heaven. It was it was a very very cool venue. Uh, If you're in the L.A. area try and work that into your agenda because it's it's really neat oh and one of my favorite things I took a bunch of pictures of was the nudie mobile
1: mm-hmm. uh, oh yeah the the big the big nudie mobile which is yeah. not what you think unless you happen <laughs> to unless you happen to know uh, country and western music and understand that reference
0: yeah yeah nudie was the guy who uh, made all those cool embroidered outfits for country singers and stuff and they had his uh, station wagon there with uh, you know, like, like gold plated rifles on the outside of it, uh, pistols for door handles, uh, cowhide seat covers. Well it and about the one of the biggest set of steer
1: horns ever on the front.
0: Yeah, right, exactly. It was it was really, really cool. Um and just, you know, tons of stuff like that around there. Uh so again, you know, if you're if you're into just looking at tchotchkes and stuff like that man it is a great place
1: yeah and you get to learn some more of the history of the valley as well but i i, I do think we'd also be remiss if i didn't point out to people that so the club has a a band and the Maltos falcons bruise band and denny said well you know he was off tottering around while i was busy setting up i did manage at one point to stand up and i uh, you know did my whole careful scanning you know make sure i don't lose the old man right <laughs> right and and where do i find denny Staring what? at the equipment, right? Yeah, yeah, wandering around the band gear, looking at all the audio gear.
0: <laughs> oh, man, I'd, I'd never seen like a, a 48-channel Behringer
1: digital mixer before. See? And, and I thought, <laughs> and also you're like, oh, hey, and the, the drummer's on an on, on electronic drum kit. And, yeah. Well, uh,
0: you know, man, it's like, I'm, I'm sorry, but I've been doing that for pretty much most of my life,
1: and uh, that's what I gravitate to. Yes, I, I did think it was funny, though. So it was an absolutely perfect thing just to go, yeah, okay, he's safe. He's amongst uh, cables and, and, and whatnot. All right, we're good. Yeah, right, right. I, I have to admit, I, that party was a blast. Uh, you know, a lot, a lot of fun, a lot of really good beer. We actually dressed up like reasonable adult human beings. We had a you know, really nice catered dinner. Uh, our, our primary host who really kind of set all the events in, into motion, a, a club member of mine named, uh, uh, Tiffany Ashrafi. uh, she, she knocked it out of the park. We had Sierra Nevada's and a whole bunch of other people as sponsors. We had all those beers that we did from the different collaborations, including LA Airworks, uh, and transplants, which you all heard from and Eagle Rock, which you will hear from. Uh, but we, uh, it's just a really, really great time. Plus, also, I have to laugh at the fact that Tiffany rocked four outfit changes during the party, like a hostess. Oh, really?
0: I didn't even notice that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> uh,
1: she's, she's like, I have, I have two young kids. I never get to change into fancy clothes, so I'm taking advantage. <laughs> That's great, man. Yeah, I, I felt definitely underdressed. Yeah, I was wearing a Magnum PI Hawaiian shirt. Uh, yeah. yeah. I, uh,
0: and and we were amongst all these people wearing tuxes and fancy formal dresses
1: and stuff like that, and it's uh, kind of like... And don't, fit, uh, don't forget Bonnie Prince Charlie uh, uh, kilt tuxes. Oh, yeah, right. There's that, too. <laughs> anyway, it was a great
0: party. Thanks for asking me to come down there. Thanks for putting up with my rambling
1: speaking. Uh, you know, I, I enjoyed it greatly. Yeah, it was a good time. And it just shows even homebrewers can try and do something fancy every once in a while. <laughs> Yeah, right. Well, uh, at least your club. Yeah. Uh, now from something fancy to something weird.
0: Yeah, I got uh, an email from an old friend uh, recently, Mick Sager, who lives up in Port Angeles, Washington, and runs a, a little nano brewery up there called Dungeness Brewing. And, uh, you know, as we've talked about uh, when we were talking about Bainbridge Brewing, in Washington they have a festival uh, in the winter called the Strange Brew Fest, where they make strange beers like uh, Russell's like Thai beer with stout noodles or his Cool Ranch Doritos beer. Well, a few years ago, uh, Mick made my wee shroomy recipe for Strange Brew Fest, and it was a big hit. And this year, he wanted to do a gin and tonic beer, so he wrote to me asking for ideas and suggestions, and I really didn't have many, so I figured, what the heck, let's throw that question in here to the podcast. And we can kind of like cogitate on it for a few minutes. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah. obviously, the the way that most gin beers are made is to age them in a gin barrel. And I don't know if Mick has access to one of those. So how would you go about making a
1: gin and tonic beer? Yeah, I've given a lot of thought to this because as I've talked about on the podcast in the past, um, I tend to drink a lot of gin and tonics. So it's probably my cocktail of choice. Now, right. to me, you got a couple of things that you got to think about, right? So you think about what a gin and tonic is. It's a dry, crisp and bitter citrusy, uh, drink, right? You know, kind of like a Collins with some more character. Right. Uh, and also usually a little less sugar, hopefully. Um, so to me, you've got four component flavors that you have to capture. So, One's the juniper, right? Since that's the primary flavorant in gin, right? Uh, And of course, you can you can get fancy and throw in all other sorts of uh, aromatics because people do. Um, Lime, because to me, it's not a gin tonic without just a little bit of lime, right? Uh, You've I like bitters, but not a lot of people do, so whatever. Um, And then you've got the other one is the uh, cinchona bark, which is the the element that gives tonic its color and gives it that. Bitter, metallic quinine thing. Mm-hmm. So you got at least three things that you have to have in there, um, and it has to also be very dry. So on the one hand, my my native running point would always be, hey, let's make a saison out of this, right? Because, you know, and that's kind of where my mind was going too. Yeah, I mean, because I, I whatever it is that you do, it has to be amazingly sparkling, dry. The other idea, of course, you could do a um, like a a cream ale but uh, go go aggressive with the fermentation or you know cuz again you want something that doesn't have a lot of body behind it and of course you could also do something like say a a, a some sort of sparkling low gravity ale so yeah
0: i mean i i'm kind of like thinking maybe uh saison with the french saison yeast because mm-hmm. i kind of feel like the phenols would kind of support the flavors you're going
1: for yeah i agree and it's not uh, uh, you're not getting as many of the spice characters with the French saison uh, yeast. And what's kind of cool is that even with the French saison, because of that uh, glycerol production that it does, you'll get a little bit of slickness in the back of the beer that I think will help support up against things like the uh, Sachona bark and the juniper and give you some apparent body without apparent sweetness. Okay, spell the name of that bark for me. Uh, Sachona, <laughs> it is... Is it the C-I-N-C-H-I-O-N-A? Okay. Okay. And is that something that's available? It is. Uh, well, and actually, wait, hold on. Sorry. I think I misspelled it. Uh, so I just looked it up. It's C-I-N-C-H-O-N-A. And yeah, it is available. It's usually, most of the time that you find it, like on Amazon or something, they sell it as a uh, a herbal supplement in capsules. But you can actually find the bark. Now, the way that you use it when you're making tonic water is that you boil that with water And sugar, like in as if though you're making a simple syrup, and then you filter that out. The stuff is incredibly painful to to work with if you're using the powders, which is the reason why it's better to have a bark that you can kind of more roughly crush. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's the it's the thing that actually makes tonic water a anti malarial agent, so you would probably want to put it in the boil for a few minutes at yeah. least,
0: yeah, and it seems like if you are using the powder, maybe you could bag it or something like that no
1: I mean, you have- to under, you have to understand it is really super fine
0: okay. um, yeah i i'm I, 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 I'm making that suggestion, never having seen it, so I have no idea what I'm talking about,
1: yeah, that's like you know a, a powderized aspirin fine okay. um so it is it it is available i mean you can you can buy it on Amazon. Uh, there are lots of people out there who do things to make their own um, their own tonic water because mm-hmm. it turns out you can make a tonic water that's cheaper and probably better than most of the stuff that you can buy, uh, particularly any of the stuff from like Schweppes or Canada Dry. And I mean, a pound of uh, citrona bark is like 25 to 40 bucks. Right. Uh, and of course, a pound is going to be enough for you to use for a while.
0: Yeah, I mean Mick, Mick on is, as I recall, maybe like about a half barrel system, something like that. It might might be a barrel at uh, most, but uh, you know, so a pound would probably do it. So okay, so let's let's go, th- let's look at this. So we we take we get the bark mm-hmm. and that goes into the boil. What you think, like 15 minutes would be enough? Probably. Yeah. Okay. Juniper. When would that go? Would that go into the boil, or would that be a, a fermentation addition?
1: Well, if we're doing this professionally and so therefore we can't use, uh, uh, tinctures, right? Right. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I would probably put that in also, uh, into the boil. Uh, like, you know, I probably wouldn't put it in 15 minutes. Five minutes. Yeah. Or, or knockout even if you're going to hold it. Yeah. If you have a little bit of a, a hot stand, uh, right. because juniper, the problem with juniper is, uh, juniper is the thing that people object to in gin. Uh, it's both its flavorant and also the reason why people go, yeah, it tastes like pine trees. Um. So you have got to be really careful with it.
0: Yeah. Right. Right. So so if you're gonna make this beer, it might be a good idea to do a pilot batch first, huh? Yeah. Absolutely. And and then, I'm, and then and then lime. Uh, I'm thinking maybe like lime peel in mm-hmm. the secondary or something like that.
1: Yeah. Or yeah. Or big lime peels in in the keg. Yeah. yeah. Although that might that might give you a little too much character. So yeah, probably secondary is fine. Um, yeah. Right. And then, yeah, as we said, use the 3711 yeast, so you get a combination of dryness, some spiciness, which can play play off as part of the aromatics of the gin, um, and but still give you an, a little bit of body. And then I think the other key is you have to carbonate the ever-living bejesus out of this.
0: Right. Yeah. This, yeah, this has got to be spritzy.
1: Like what, maybe three volumes? Uh, I'm thinking more like
0: three and a half, four. Wow. That's, that's really up there. Yeah. But yeah. So Mick, if you're listening, man, uh, that's, that's our suggestions. Uh, I have no idea if it would work for you. Like I said, maybe a pilot batch, break out the old home brewing system and try a pilot batch first so that you know it's going to work. So good luck, buddy. I hope it works out
1: for you. Yeah. And by the way, if anybody out there has any, any attempts that they've made at doing a gin and tonic type beer, and I'm sure there are, a few of you. Let us know. Write us at podcast at We'll include your feedback and we'll also get to Mick so that Mick can have a better shot at doing uh doing something strange and good. Yeah,
0: right. You know, and and again on the homebrew level, if it was me, I'd just pour gin into it. But uh commercial brewer can't do that.
1: Well, I mean, like if if it was just me, I'd I'd figure out how to make my own tonic water and then make a keg full of tonic water and throw a bunch of gin in it. But that would uh, not be legal for a brewer.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And and we've talked uh, before about the
1: danger of having gin and tonics on tap. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, we have. But now let's go to something that we do like to have on tap, a little less dangerous and some Christmas time brewing. Uh, I've already started setting up some beers for Christmas because – some of those beers that you heard me talk about on that episode with Denny are already starting to go bye-bye, as in uh, apparently some uh, mystery gnome is attacking my kegs in the middle of the night and draining them slowly. Um, and so I, I've set up a couple of things. I've got one thing in flight right now, and it's been a bit of a pain because of the cold snap we've had here, which is I decided to make my Vecla Bon Vu-inspired Cezanne DuPont winter beer, right? And so if you've never had a Vecla Bon Vu, that's their... Their Christmassy beer, but it's not really a Christmassy beer. It's just, you know, with the best wishes of the brewery. And it's their bigger, stronger take on the regular DuPont with a bit more hop character to it as well. So it's an absolutely wonderful beer. It is arguably always in my top five of beers that I'd like to drink. Um, so I decided I would go ahead and make a version of it or something inspired by, an homage, so to speak. And I made this beer that I'm calling Triple Wishes. I used a bunch of South African hops in it just to have something new to play with. And unfortunately, I I used the DuPont strains in it because I like those DuPont strains. But then we went from being in the 80s here in L.A. to being in the 50s and the 60s uh, almost overnight. And so it stalled out the beer at about 1025. So now <laughs> I'm having to, to work it back into shape and get it moving again. <sighs> um, but, but, but
0: you do have a plan, though.
1: Oh, I do have a plan. Yes, I, I've I've roused it. And I've pulled it into someplace warmer. And I mean, and if say by next week it's not down any further, then I'll I'll probably throw some T58 in there, just right. to, just to kill it. Sure. Um, but it, yeah, and, and I was actually kind of surprised. This is the first time I've had the Dupont strains go uh, wonky on me uh, in a while. Ever since I discovered the open fermentation trick, and I'm fairly certain it's just because of the cold snap. Um, but then on top of that, because I also realized I'm almost out of my Belgian golden strong, which I realized after we left, I didn't get a chance to get you to taste because I think you would love it. Um, but because I'm out of that, I decided I need to, uh, I need to brew something up to, in order to, you know, keep my reserves going. So I'm actually brewing a Potter's beer right now. So that's a, you know, sort of just a Trappist single. And I'm going to brew that, and I'm brewing that with a Belgian ale strain to grow up a yeast cake so I can then turn around and brew my Belgian Strong Golden so I can have that, because I'm certainly not going to try and throw a, a um, fresh, small pouch of yeast at a big Belgian Golden. Well, that sounds great, man. I have
0: no idea what I'm going to be brewing. I just suddenly realized that Christmas is almost upon us now. If I have time, if I aggregate my fecal matter... As they say, um, I would like to make uh, the uh, the Rochefort clone recipe, uh, Rochefort 8, Rochefort 10, one of those. I found a bunch of uh, candy syrup laying around the other day that I'd forgotten I had, and that's one of my favorite beers and a great one for uh, Christmas. And the other thing I generally try and make this time of year is uh, a Sierra Nevada celebration uh, homage. I, I don't call beers clones because you can't really clone it. Um, you know, but I, I really like to do that. And, uh, also this time of year, I generally make my, uh, my no tie brown ale, an American brown. And somehow I just totally overlooked that, that normally would have been brewed a couple months ago and it just went out the window. Slacker. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I know. Well, yes, I've been brewing all this other stuff because people send us these ingredients to try. And so I'm like, you know, I've got like a. Pilsner made with the Ida Pils malt and the Mm -hmm. diamond lager yeast. I've got that brew malt IPA. I think I've got something else out there. Uh, Several batches of cider going. And it just totally slipped my mind to brew all these other beers that I would normally be
1: brewing at this time of year. I think that falls under the category of first world brewer problems.
0: You know what? I think it falls under the category of when you get to be this age, you forget everything. That's true. That's
1: That's why I've taken the stern practice of trying to write down as much as I can.
0: Just, to, yeah, just right. to get
1: ready. I thought uh, maybe you were going to adopt the practice of not aging. No, I'd love to do that, but I'd, uh, I think if I could do that, I'd spend that first on my dogs. Um, <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Um. So I guess this uh, really does bring home the point uh, to everybody else. What are you brewing for Christmas? What are you brewing for the New Year's and the holidays and to get you through these long, cold, dark winter days?
0: Yeah, get in touch and let us know what kind of Christmas and New Year's beers that you guys are making,
1: and uh, we'll talk about those here, too. Yes, all holiday beers accepted, including, oh, God, I need a beer, beer. (laughs) Yeah, right.
0: Okay, so I guess we've gone through about uh, all the beer brewing stuff that we can think of for the moment. So we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to wrap up the show with a quick tip, something other, and then send you on your Merry Christmas way. Stick around. We'll be right back. Are you having trouble finding enough time to homebrew and give attention to the other important things in your life? Is your newest brewed IPA experiment coming at the expense of other obligations? Don't neglect partner or pet. Brew with the Genesis Fermenter. Learn why at genesisfermenter.com and find them wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold. East's private collection release of global Loggers covers the gamut of styles being brewed and celebrated around the world this time of year. 2575 Kolsch 2 from Germany produces a rich flavor profile and is suitable for a range of fermentation conditions. For international and American lager styles, 2272 North American Lager provides mild maltiness and a medium ester profile. And direct from the Austrian Alps. 2487 Hellebach Lager will create a rich, full-bodied, and complex multi-profile sought after in many German lager styles. These Y-East originals are available now through the end of December at your local homebrew shop. Find out more at yeastlab.com. Welcome back. Thanks for listening to those messages. If you do business with any of our sponsors, please let them know that you heard about them here on Experimental
1: Brewing. So to wrap things up, we're going to Drew. Hit it, buddy. All right, so my quick tip is an easy one. Always check back on your brew day the day after. And I say this for a very good reason. Uh, I find that when I get down to the end of a brew day, you know, and I've been cleaning everything up and I've got things put away, you know, like I'll have my carboys or my kettles or, you know, buckets that I use during the day. Like I'll turn them upside down and I'll I'll let them drip dry overnight. And if I don't remember to come back the next day, you know, those buckets and carboys and like my grandfather system will sit upside uh, upside down the whole time. I don't want them to sit upside down the whole time. You know, I want to get them back into an organized fashion so that they can uh, go live in a corner. So, and also, you know, uh, there are other things that happen where, hey, you know, like a hose I used, was that thing completely dry? You know, did I did I leave something in star sand because I was running around like, you know, like a crazy person? So, and also, hey, let me go double check the fermentation chamber and make sure it's at the right temperature. That one's happened too. So always go back in the day after your brew day and check out what's going on in your brewery. That's a that's a really good tip, man. And I
0: generally do that, but not always. So I'm gonna just try and be more cognizant of the fact I need to do that.
1: Yeah, it's it's just good habit. So yep. I know some of you all have your have your breweries in your in your bathrooms and whatnot, and or your spare bathroom. It'd be weird if you had it in your primary bathroom. Um, but yeah, so that's a little bit easier for you. Uh, the rest of us we're out in our garages and whatnot. Make sure you go into your garage. Okay. Yeah. All right, and just, then
0: – Just double-check and make sure everything is going the way you intended
1: to. Absolutely. Now, on something other than beer – well, it's something other than beer, but it's still something boozy, because I wanted to talk about something I did for Thanksgiving this year, uh, and I had great fun doing this. There is sort of a revival in this world of uh, booze about the idea of around milk punch. And no, you didn't hear me wrong there. I said milk punch, as in the stuff we get from cows. Cows give milk punch? It would be great if they did. <laughs> but they give at least milk. So, what milk punch is? It's actually a very, very old technique. It dates back to sometime in the 1700s, like early 1700s. And this was back when punch culture was really huge. And it's a not gonna lie, super fortified, you know, boozy drink. But what happens is it's a strongly flavored drink. The one I did was from Chef Steps, and it used uh, green tea, a uh, very strong green tea, uh, dark rum, light rum, bourbon. Uh, then, uh, lemon juice, lime juice, some sugar and milk. And what you actually are doing is, and a whole bunch of spices too. And so the day before you set this up, it takes two days to make this. Um, you set it up, you mix together all your booze and your, your little bit of your juice, your spices and whatnot, and you put that someplace cold and let it steep. And then the next day after it's steeped, you drain it out and you filter out all the spices and all the solids, including a bunch of pineapple. I forgot the pineapple. Um, And you strain all that out and put it off to the side. And now what you're left with is a very murky and kind of bitter liquid. And so while you do that, and you let that finish uh, straining, you heat up a quart of milk. And once the milk has come to a boil, but uh, not a raging boil, you turn off the heat and you pour the punch material. So all that booze and a little bit of the juice and whatnot into the into the milk and then add some extra lemon and lime juice and then give it a stir and guess what you've just made you've just milk made punch well now you've made boozy cheese because the milk, because the milk starts to instantly sure. separate into whey and curds so you let that go for two hours letting that sort of the casein form those curds and then you filter the curds out and so you filter this this punch through a fine mesh strainer, through a coffee filter, through paper towels, whatever it is that you have to catch all those curds and then allow the stuff to slowly filter down through the curd bed and drip into the, into the, your receiving vessel. And what you end up with is what had started as this very dark and bitter and tannic beverage. By the time it's done filtering is this clear, slightly opalescent yellow punch that has all the tea flavors and the booze flavors with it without any of the harsh bitterness. And it just becomes this super smooth, super easy to drink stuff. And it takes you, like I said, no joke, about two days to put it together. But after that, I just put it in a big old mason jar and stick it in the fridge. And now whenever you want a cocktail, like for a holiday party, you can grab your mason jar, put grab a rocks glass, put a nice piece of ice in there, and pour some of your milk punch on it and serve that. Easy peasy.
0: (laughs) Man, I don't know. It sounds it sounds like more work than I want to go to. I'll
1: just pour some vodka into a glass of milk. <laughs> well, that's the nice part. It's not actually milky, right? It's now clear. So, yeah. so it's a it's a very cool, very uh, fascinating old school thing. And I set it up before Thanksgiving because I figured, well, I'm going to be doing a bunch of cooking anyway. So I'll just do this. And it was easy. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, it's, it's a very interesting concept, man. And there you go. So Milk Punch, and I'll include the link to Chef Steps where they have a video for it. Uh, It's a fun concept, and, of course, there are multiple different ways that you can do it. The big key is basically you just need enough acid and enough milk to be able to strip out anything bitter out of a punch.
0: Right, right. And there are no questions this time because we're saving them up for our big Q and a episode next time, so let me just remind you one more time: get your questions in by December twelfth You can uh, email them to questions at podcast at dot com or you can give us a call or send us a text at six two six seven six five one ale give us your home brewing questions, and we'll see what we can do with them. And Indeed. So I guess it's time for the wrap-up. Thank you all for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing, or on Facebook. You can find Drew hanging out on the homebrewing subreddit or the Slack homebrew channel. I am usually on the AHA discussion forum, although I'm on a bunch of other ones, too. If you want to ask us questions, suggest topics or recipes, experiments, or even just rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at Or if you want to get in touch with each one of us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. And again, you can always get in touch with us at 626-765-1-AL. That's 1253 for those of you who don't spell. And don't forget our website is experimentalbrew.com. So until next time remember to always brew experimentally. Or brewacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of experimental brewing.